0: This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for Your Life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So, in the um, pagan world, uh, this day, December 25th, is Yuletide, which was later taken over by other newfangled religions, but um, it's the festival of midwinter, and Siddhi, who is today's Buddha, is the Buddha of midwinter. And I want to carry on with my little Yuletide story uh, that I started when I was talking about Ratnasambhava. You remember we were lost in a forest, a snowy forest at night, a wilderness. And then the dawn light brought the spirit of Akshobhya and we were able to sort of pull ourselves together, find out where we were, find out who we are, take stock and discover that welcoming cottage, the cottage of Ratnasambhava. And inside the cottage, Everything was conviviality and welcome, um, food, friendship and that warmth of the fire, um, positive emotion. But as the darkness drew in on that day and the sun began to set, one by one all the people left the cottage until we were on our own sitting there by the fireside, gazing into the flames. If you've ever done a solitary retreat, you'll know that's one of the great pleasures. If you've got a wood stove or an open fire, you just, nobody's asking you to do anything. You can meditate whenever you like. You can just sit there for hours and hours by the open fire gazing into the glowing coals and the flickering flames, seeing pictures there, seeing significance, maybe even messages coming through from the flames. So we go deeper into a meditation, all is flow, all is flow, the flickering of the flames and this is the spirit of Amitabha and the small mind dies, something really profound happens, a turning about in the deepest seat of consciousness during that dusk sitting by the flames and we open into the big mind of insight. So that's where we've reached uh, Akshobi uh, of awareness, mindfulness, um, uh, embodiment, integration, coming together and then Ratnasambhava opening into positive emotion and then um, Amitabha. Insight, spiritual death, Uh, that's very, very deep contemplation uh, that brings a sense of what's really going on. So what happens next? Well, Amogasiddhi is the next Buddha, the Buddha of the north, the green Buddha. He's our next stop as we go around the mandala. So in the little cottage, it seems a minute, it seems like a year. And then the grandfather clock in the corner strikes midnight, (coughs) bong, bong, and so on, yes. Uh, The witching hour. And we raise our eyes from those dancing flames and we look around. Everything is different, yet everything is the same. Nothing has changed, but it all seems to have a new uh, colour, a new significance. Amitabha has given us a new way of seeing. A crucial breakthrough of insight has been made. In a way this is the crucial point in the Buddhist life. It's when you're seeing things just as they are, without the overlay of the needs and the fears of the small mind. And that's in a way the important thing, that's something which is achievable by anybody. It happens first in small ways but eventually it happens deeply and permanently. Um, solidly and it's with you as a touchstone for the rest of your life a touchstone of insight so we um, let the insight sink in just absorbing it reflecting on it letting it go deep into us and gradually as we sit there by the fire through the small wee hours, a resolution forms in our mind. And we take a refreshing sleep, and then in the new day, we leave the cottage and we head out through the fir trees towards the city. So now our journey is outwards, meeting the people, engaging with the world. So there's this very interesting movement uh, in the mandala, a sort of a rhythm, a sort of a cycle of inner and outer, turning in and turning out. Um, And that's demonstrated here by Amogasiddhi's mudra, it's an outward mudra. Um, Here it's shown up here, quite often it's by the heart, so you have this outward facing palm, it's the mudra of courage, non-fear, abhaya, abhaya mudra. So can you see what happens as you move through the four mudras of the four buddhas that we've met so far? So we started with Akshobhya here, and Akshobhya came down, touched the earth with an inward facing hand (coughs) and then there was a turning, Ratnasambhava, the hand turned outwards in love, positive emotion. Then there was another turning as the hands came in for Amitabha, resting in deep meditation. Now it turns again outwards for Amogasiddhi, the mudra of courage. Now it's, it's sort of a dance, isn't it? You could imagine actually even designing a dance around that movement, you know, that, that lovely flow of the hands. And in fact, if you watch um, Tibetan uh, films of Tibetan lamas, uh, doing the rituals, you'll find the mudras do go through this beautiful uh, flow uh, of the hands, picking up a mantra, perhaps picking up, ringing a bell, and flowing through the mudras of the different offerings. Oh, and then, of course, tomorrow, I mean, I, I don't want to um, uh, usurp the santra's talk too much, but just see what happens to the mudra then. We're here, and then the other hand comes up, one out, one in. So he may possibly mention what significance of that is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's like a sort of a systole and a diastole of spiritual practice, the heartbeat. Uh, at first you have uh, the still relaxation of akshobhya grounding, fully present, and then the heart of Ratnasambhava contracts, sending the life-giving blood outwards in generosity and love. And then stillness again, and relaxation again with Amitabha. And now we're back with action, moving out with Amoghasiddhi. And Amoghasiddhi is the Buddha of action. His family is the karma family. But it's subtle, skillful action. He's not the Buddha of busyness. And his mudra is the mudra of courage." So what's the origin of this concept, uh, this image of courage in the Buddhist tradition? Well the first place I would want to go to in the life of the Buddha is the time before he was enlightened. And before he was enlightened he spent time on his own in the jungle and he deliberately sought out the most scary places. And the Indian jungle in those days probably was pretty scary for very good reasons. Tigers, snakes, lions, um, scorpions, but also strange ghosts inhabiting the old ruined shrines. And the Buddha would sit there and he said as he sat there, because he wasn't enlightened, he would get absolutely terrified. And he, would, he said, I would feel the, the fear and dread arising. And he said, but when I felt the fear and dread arising, I decided that I would do nothing at all. I would simply sit with it. I wouldn't even move. And then uh, a twig would snap, the fear and dread. What was coming? Or a peacock would cry. If you ever heard the peacock crying, it's uh, a terrifying uh, noise. Where, Where I used to live as a kid, they had peacocks in the garden at the pub and you'd be going through the old cemetery past the pub, <laughs> and you'd hear this noise going, <laughs> it was a bit like that. And you think, what was that? And eventually, of course, you learned it was only the peacocks. But the Buddha heard the peacocks crying, and the fear and dread would rise. And he would say, "I just sit with it, until it went away. And that's how he dealt with it, by just facing it, by being there with it. And then later... Um, In the seventh week after the Buddha's enlightenment, we've heard the stories around the time of the Buddha's enlightenment. Uh, We've heard about the attack of Mara's armies and so on. Um, But after the enlightenment, uh, Buddha just stayed there meditating, absorbing his experience. And there was a sort of a culmination of the whole experience. And this happened when it started raining. Uh, in India, in northern India the monsoon is a really strong event you, know, you can feel the tension in the atmosphere everything is dry everything is waiting for the rain They're so hot and the Buddha was sitting there in the shade of a tree through this heat, in fact he chose a tree called the Muchalinda tree which was right by a lake and you can imagine, you know, he could get some water a little bit cooler there by the lake sitting under the tree and then the, what to call I think the cows of Indra started to gallop over the horizon. That is, the black rain clouds started coming, flashes of lightning in the distance, the rumble coming over the landscape, and the Buddha just sat there, didn't move. And then the rain starts... And it wasn't a nice, gentle rain like we've been having the last few days. This is monsoon rain. This is absolutely torrential, pelting down. He was under the shelter of the tree, but that wasn't enough. Water was dripping down his neck. He was sitting there, at least it was warm, you know, he wasn't getting cold. But there he was in the monsoon rain. And the the level of the lake started to rise, uh, as is happening uh, at this very moment in the West Country. The, The waters were rising. They were lapping around his feet. They were coming up his, but he just sat there through all this. And in the lake, according to the old legend, dwelt a dragon. Uh, In the depths of the mud of the lake, a naga. And the naga, in the form of a giant cobra, if you imagine a cobra where its body is that much round, it slithered out of the waters of the lake, the Muchalinda Lake. Its name was Muchalinda. The tree was its tree, the lake was its lake. And it approached the Buddha. Da-da-da-da. You think, what's going to happen now? You know, is it going to bite the Buddha and kill him and swallow him whole? Uh, and then it throws a coil around the Buddha. Now, Cobras. It looks like a cobra. Cobras not actually constrictors, but let's not worry about the zoology of it. It throws a coil around the Buddha. It's going to squeeze him, isn't it? It's going to squash him to death. He'll be suffocated. He's only just gained enlightenment. What a waste, you know. Another coil goes round. But actually then what it turns out is that the Naga is protecting the Buddha, is rescuing the Buddha. And he raises him, raises the Buddha up on his coils. Uh, You see this quite often in Buddhist art. Sometimes three coils, sometimes seven coils. So the Buddha is tier by tier raised up above the water, sitting on the coils of the cobra. And then the hood of the great Naga um, extends over the head of the Buddha, forms an umbrella, protects him from the rain. It's an amazing feeling of enclosure, um, of protection, uh, this sense of, uh, of the coils of the snake and the hood of the snake over the Buddha. And there he sits as the torrential rain pours down and it pours down for seven days and seven nights. And then it stops And the waters recede back into the lake again and the Naga uncoils himself from around the Buddha and moves in front of the Buddha and there's a sort of a strange shimmer in the atmosphere and he turns into a young prince because the Nagas have got the ability to take human form. Uh, The Nagas were met later because they were the protectors of the the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras and in that case they would come to Nagarjuna's lectures. Nagarjuna was the great abbot of uh, Nalanda University. They would come to his lectures, especially the Naga princess, but he couldn't tell she was a Naga because she took the form of a human being. And the same is the case with Muchalinda. He takes the form of a young man and he bows in front of the Buddha. So in a sense this is the culminating point of the Buddha's enlightenment process, it's sort of the peak of it. It's when it's all fully absorbed and I don't know if you can get the impression from that legend. You know, the rain pouring, pouring down. There's a, s- a strong reflection with Mara's armies. Mara's armies hauling, hu- sort of uh, hurling their tree trunks and rocks at the Buddha. You know, from all sides, they all turn into a rain of flowers. But now we have a purely, as it were, natural event, the rainstorm. But this rainstorm is nature now completely aligned with the Buddha's mind uh, as the rain percolates and floods through the ground and as the naga prince now in human form bows before the buddha the symbol of the full integration of those natural forces with the forces of the buddha's mind the buddha looks around opens his eyes he's been still this whole time in med- deep meditation and what does he see green everything you know the grass in that 7 day period it's amazingly fast the trees have burst into leaf the grass is showing uh, the flowers are beginning to come out. Everything is green, the green of City. So City is sometimes shown with Naga hoods over his head, or sometimes with a cobra coiled up sleeping by his side. So you can see that connection. And he's the Buddha of the north, City. And uh, you remember I said that Ratnasambhava, as the Buddha of the south, would have been associated probably with Sri Lanka and the legical, legendary tropical jewel islands in the Indian Ocean. Well, think of the north. Imagine you were living there in northeastern India. What would the north be? The north is the Himalayas, or the Himalayas, to give them the proper pronunciation, and the great mountains covered uh, in their lower slopes with green forests. So, there in the north, in the Himalayas, there's a lake, a huge lake, Anapatapta. And in that lake, according to the ancient Indian legend, there dwells the most powerful Naga of all, the greatest Naga in the world. And this Naga gives source, gives nourishment to the four great rivers of India that flow out of that lake, flow in different directions and come down onto the dry Indian plains, bringing nourishment, bringing life, bringing fertility with them. Um, so there's the naga there, associated uh, for the ancient Indian mind with the north and with the Buddha of the north, uh, Amogha City. So I mentioned that Amogha City's mudra is the outward turned up higher mudra, but this in the Buddha's life is not associated with the Muchalinda episode. The Buddha there is just deep in meditation. This is associated with another episode in the life of the Buddha, this mudra. Uh, And again, you'll often see it depicted in Buddhist art. Um, The Buddha's cousin, Devadatta, was intensely ambitious. And when the Buddha was an old man, Devadatta went up to him and said, look, you could retire now. You've done enough. It's time for you to take a rest. It's time for you to start drawing your pension. I can take over. I can manage it. I've been watching how you do it. It's easy. I'll look after the Sangha. I will develop Buddhism. I'll make Buddhism into a great power in this world. We'll take over everything. This is what Devadatta said to the Buddha. And the Buddha just looked at him and said, Nobody governs the Sangha. Least of all you. And... Devadatta slunk off and brooded over this and his envy, his jealousy of the Buddha's influence grew stronger and stronger and eventually he couldn't bear it any longer and he plotted to kill the Buddha or at least to have the Buddha killed first of all he sent an assassin with a bow and an arrow but the assassin could not bring himself to harm the Buddha and became a disciple so the Buddha's Followers set a guard around him, all holding stout cudgels, looking out for more assassins. And when the Buddha noticed this, he said, go away, go away, get on with your meditation. I can look after myself. I'm not at all bothered about this. I'm not scared. So uh, a number of other things happened. And eventually, um, Devadatta bribed the jailer in the great city. And the jailer owned a huge, terrifying, wild elephant And this elephant was used for public executions. I won't tell you how they did it, but it wasn't very pleasant. Um, And so Devadatta uh, got the jailer to set the elephant on the Buddha. So one day, the elephant was set loose down the main street of the town. Imagine this broad main street. The Buddha, as the Buddha was entering the main street from the other end. So we've got this sort of runway with the elephant at one end and the Buddha at the other end. And Within about 30 seconds, everybody in the city had scattered. They dived into their cellars. They were hiding behind their walls. You just had this empty road with the Buddha and Ananda. Ananda, ever loyal, the Buddha's closest disciple stayed with him. And thundering, the Buddha started charging Trumpeting down the road, its sort of little red eyes absolutely filled with fury. I should say the jailer had got it drunk just to make sure. So it, has, it takes a lot of liquor, actually, to make an elephant drunk. Uh, so David Atta somehow managed to raise the cash uh, to pay for all this beer. And there's the elephant trundling down, charging, thundering down. Imagine the noise of it, the trumpeting Now, especially if you weren't used to lorries or trains or anything. This would be the most terrifying thing you'd ever seen. And Ananda, you can just imagine Ananda, Ananda so loyal to the Buddha. He said, uh, you, you, you go and hide. I'll, I'll, I'll distract its attention, he says. Uh, I'll, I'll fight it off. Don't worry, don't worry. You go and hide. And the Buddha said to Ananda, no, Ananda. He said, you go. go just go wait now. And Ananda was very, very reluctant. And eventually he agreed. And Ananda went and hid behind the wall. Elephant trumbling down, charging down the road. And the Buddha uh, just raised his hand in the Apaya Mudra. In the mudra of courage. And as he did so, he um, clarified in his mind uh, a sense of enormous goodwill towards the elephant. This is what he said, enormous metta. Um, He made the elephant aware of this intense goodwill. May you be well. May you be content. May you be a very, very happy elephant. This is what the Buddha said. And the elephant slowed down. And the elephant slowed down to a walk and walked forward and his trunk went down like this and according to the story he knelt down in front of the Buddha and paid homage. So Devadatta's ruses did not work. And this is the uh, origin. this is the first story in which this mudra, the Apaya mudra, appears. So, the mudra of courage, the mudra of fearlessness, uh, initially was to do with envy. It was connected with envy, the intense envy of Devadatta. And this is the poison, the glacier that uh, Amogasiddhi is said to transform. Amoghasiddhi transforms envy into the skillful, all-performing wisdom. Now at first sight, if you look at that gesture, you might think that it's a gesture of warding off evil, warding off power. Uh, keep back elephant, I'm more powerful than you are, a great explosion will pulse out from the palm of my hand and knock you flying, you know, like sort of Gandalf with his staff or something like that. <laughs> um, but this is not the meaning of the Apaya Mudra. This is not the meaning of the Mudra. I mean, even in the story, it was not power that the Buddha used, it was love, it was metta that the Buddha used. It's not even saying, I am fearless, I am without fear. It's much more than that. It's said that the Abhaya Mudra is the mudra which grants fearlessness. It bestows fearlessness. It's taken for granted that the Buddha, since he has no small mind to protect, doesn't have any fear. But what he's offering, or what the is offering with this gesture, is to infect you with his confidence, with his courage. So do you see how we get to this point? We've built ourselves up to this point by going round the mandala, First, with Akshobhya, we had complete awareness, being present, fully embodied, integrated as one person, without any conflict. And then Ratnasambhava, positive emotion, blossomed, and we were warm, we felt connected, we felt a solidarity with all that lives. And then Amitabha, representing the phase of spiritual death, um, gives us the chance to sit intensively, intensely with the whole significance of our experience completely dropping the defensive small mind and opening to the way things really are. So now city is the next phase, it's the phase of allowing our insights to flood through our whole being, our whole mind. Um, spiritual rebirth, it's and the insights fruiting into a new type of me, uh, becoming reborn as a being who's now completely informed by insight, who lives from insight, and most of all, who acts from insight. So, Amoghasiddhi is the Buddha of wise, compassionate action. Now, we might not yet have Amoghasiddhi's insight, uh, or even Amitabha's insight, in the full sense. But we do have some insight. We do have some spiritual rebirth because we have some insight. I think it's quite important. This is one of the elements of that mudra of confidence. The confidence that we already, to some extent, know what's going on. You know, we might sometimes think to ourselves, I'm completely deluded. Or we might sometimes think to ourselves, I'm completely sussed. We're neither, actually. We do have, however, uh, some knowledge. We have learned something from our lives. You know, everyone here has been around for decades. And during those decades, you've had all sorts of experiences. And some of them, uh, you just repeat the mistakes and it happens again. But some of them, you've noticed something. I'm sure you have. You've realised, no, hang on, that doesn't work. Or, oh, that works really well. Appreciation of other people, that really works, doesn't it? I'll try more of that. So it's as if there are certain little things that do um, sink in, that you do learn. And we can call them insights with a small I. For example, uh, when I started meditating, I was sometimes prone to depression. But one morning, maybe because of the meditation, it dawned on me that no depression lasted forever. Depression was not the whole of reality, even though it felt like that when I was in the middle of it. Um, And immediately the sting was taken out of that tendency. It didn't then stop happening, but it didn't seem to matter so much, and gradually that tendency died away until it lost its power. And it lost its power because I realised—not because I sort of was suddenly able to sort of magically get rid of it, but just because I realised it wasn't fixed. It wasn't something solid. It wasn't me. It was just a wave, a worldly wind that washed over me. I was no, no longer feeding it with my deluded thoughts that it was fixed, that it was the way things really were. So sometimes I think it's very good to look at that, and I suggest this in the groups, you know. Well, what have I realised? You know, to hear other people's insights can be very useful as well. What have I already noticed about the world, about my life? Try putting it into words, even. There's a sort of a a process you can go through. You first of all actually notice it. Because sometimes it may just pass. You may just think, oh yeah, that's true, isn't it? Yeah, And then you don't really take it seriously. So you notice it. Maybe put it down into words. Take it seriously. Dwell on it. Meditate on it. Reflect on it. How does it affect that realization that my uh, depression is not a fixed thing? Does that apply to other moods I get into as well? You know. So it's reflection. You start to apply it to other areas of your life. And then you see its implications. You let it impact you, and then you act on it. You live. You live from it. So this is the meaning of this process of spiritual rebirth, which we're associating with Emoga City. Allow yourself to be transformed by taking your deep experiences seriously. And what this generates is best expressed perhaps as a kind of confidence, a kind of courage. Your hand turns outwards in this gesture of fearlessness. And you feel now you've got permission to live. It's okay. You don't have to be so inhibitive. You don't have to hold yourself in all the time out of fear and anxiety and need. There's something significant there that allows you to be confident. uh, That you feel, yes, I can act. I can intervene. I can be involved without causing too much damage in the world. Sometimes I will make mistakes but uh, I'm going to go for it. Uh, I remember one thing that Santra once said, (laughs) um, was to do with failure. You know that failure, in a sense, is quite a good sign. Uh, Things not working out or going wrong is quite a good sign, but at least you're taking risks. At least you're trying something. I mean, of course, you don't want it to fail. You want it to work really well. But sometimes, if you really do risk things, if you get involved with life, get involved with other people, sometimes they will take offence. You'll find, oh, I've trapped on a trod on a toe there. And you might be tempted, I'll just stay back, I'll hide in my room, I won't have any impact at all, I'll be very, very quiet and meek and mild. But then nothing, you make no difference in the world, do you? So it's worth intervening, being involved. And I found that a very useful, I hope I got it right, but a very useful suggestion from Vasantra that don't feel that the fact that sometimes you've failed shows that you are a failure. You're not a failure. Uh, Failure is a sign of success. So, Omega City represents the long phase of developing all the qualities that are needed to make a difference in the world based on real, profound insights that you may have heard. Omega City is the path of transformation. Uh, Amitabha is the path of vision. Omega City is the path of transformation. The five stages we're talking about are inspired by the five great stages of the path. Uh, from uh, early Buddhism, uh, and I won't go through them all, but uh, the third one is the path of vision, uh, represented by the first phase of the Noble Eightfold Path, and the fourth one is the path of transformation, transformation in the light of that vision. So let's look at the other associations of City. So I mentioned he is the Buddha of wise, spontaneous action. So his family is called the Karma family. He rules over, he's the monarch of the karma family. Because the word karma simply means action. Action of body, speech or mind. And one of the foundations of Buddhism (coughs) is that skillful action leads to beneficial consequences. While unskillful action leads to harmful consequences. So a large part of leading the Buddhist life is working out what is skillful and what is unskillful. What are the mental states that lead to skillful karmas? What are the mental states that lead to unskillful karmas? Encouraging the mental states, giving energy to the mental states that are skillful, and taking energy away, not acting on those mental states that are unskillful, because you know they'll lead to problems, to damage. And then eventually your ethics becomes more and more skillful. This is what karma means. Now, city doesn't have to work this out. He doesn't have to sit down and think, ah, oh, now, what precept is involved now? I'm about to talk to somebody. I've got to remember to be truthful. I've got to remember to be kind in my speech and useful and harmonious. Oh, you're right, yes. Okay, I've got it worked out. I'll take a few notes. He doesn't have to do that because Amogasiddhi's action is spontaneous. It's spontaneously always skillful, always helpful, as helpful as possible. But that's the ideal. That's what this whole thing is about. And for us, we're not at that ideal level yet. So we do need to consider... Our actions and whether they're skillful or unskillful. And because of Amoga Siddhi's perfection in this area, his name means accomplishment cannot fail. Amoga means can't fail, and Siddhi means accomplishment. Um, It's as in the Buddha's personal name. So the Buddha's personal name was Siddhartha, and the Siddha part of that means accomplishment, and Arta means what really matters. So the Buddha's personal name meant the accomplishment of what really matters. And Amogha Siddhi's personal name, or Buddha name, means accomplishment cannot fail, infallible success. And you can see how this goes with his wisdom, because his wisdom is the all-performing wisdom, the wisdom that succeeds in its action. So the atmosphere of Amogha Siddhi is one of complete freedom, he can always choose the most skillful way of intervening in any situation. Very deft, very subtle, uh, not like a charging elephant, but just like a man standing in the road, lifting his hand like that and looking at the elephant with love. Something very, very subtle, responding to things which often seem very clumsy and gross in love. <coughs> so this means that a City is the master of the air element, the air element represents the freedom to soar, to move, to fly in any direction. Now you might think that Amogasiddhi's animal would be the Naga, from what I've said, but it is not the Naga. Um, the Naga is, in India, a beast of the waters. It's um, Rather than that, it's a creature of the air, Amogasiddhi's element. And this creature of the air is based on the eagle, So if you think, again, that you're living there in in eastern India, and you think of the Himalayas, who's the king of the Himalayas? It's the eagle. It's that great bird that can soar around the mountain peaks. Nothing can limit the eagle. (coughs) Everything fears the eagle. And uh, in Amogasiddha's case, it becomes a mythical beast, the mythical eagle man, the Garuda. The Garuda incidentally in China the naga took to the air and became the flying dragon as we, we call it the word dragon um, but not in India yeah okay, this is a this is a Chinese style dragon flying through the air on my t-shirt here Um So we think of this great soaring eagle in the mountains, so fierce, so impressive, the ruler of the peaks. And the Garuda has the head and the lower part of an eagle and the wings of an eagle, but the torso and the arms of a human being. And perhaps strangely, given that he's the bird of Amogh City, the Garuda is the sworn enemy of the Naga. And if you see images of the Garuda, for example, in Tibetan art, he's often shown Holding the Naga stretched between, not his talents, because he's got arms, human arms, uh, held up captive uh, between his hands like this. Uh, the garuda is immensely strong and conquers the Naga. Um, and in uh, Tibet, in fact, the Indian garuda underwent a further process of evolution, becoming even more humanized and lost the eagle's head and developed um, a human Head, uh, so you have what's known as the Shangshang or the Shangshang bird uh, as the emblem of Amoga City. So, on Amogha City's uh, uh, images, you'll sometimes see a Shangshang bird, and sometimes you'll see uh, a Garuda, but they've, they've, they're quite similar. Amoga City is the master of the air elements, free to glide to soar in any direction, covering vast distances through his lovely green rolling mountain forests. And Amogasiddhi's emblem, which you can see him holding in the image here, is the double Vajra. Um, I couldn't f- find an actual metal double Vajra, now, there's one on the colour of a book. Um, but basically it's what it says, you pick up uh, the Vajra of um, uh, Akshavia, uh, two of them, and you cross them over like that, and you get a double Vajra. It's known as the Vishva Vajra. And I think that the word Vishva is the same as the first element in Vasantra's name, is that right? Yes. So the word Vishva means something like uh, everything, or complete, completely integrated, uh, integral, uh, because it's not just got one direction to it, it's got both directions. The Vajras cross each other. And this seems to have been based on an old Buddhist legend that our universe started with two immensely powerful winds blowing across each other, each of them more powerful than any other force, yet meeting and becoming a foundation for the cosmos. So there's this sense of the enormously powerful yet stable foundation of the double Vajra, the crossing Vajras. Um... So it's completely stable yet enormously powerful. It's a base from which to act. And the female Buddha of Amoghasiddhi's action family is Green Tara. Um, now Tara is sometimes associated with Amitabha in Amitabha's family, and um, particularly White Tara here is. Really. So these, these two are both images of Tara. So we have White Tara here and Green Tara here. But Green Tara. Uh, becomes a fully-fledged Buddha, a female Buddha, and as such is associated with is known as Amogasiddhius consort. Now, apart from the colour and the number of lotuses, can you see a difference? uh, If you know this, don't say, but if you don't know this, can you see a difference between the green Tara and the white Tara? Anybody notice what the difference in, in them is? Have a good look. Her foot is coming down. So, Green Tara and White Tara is up in meditation. Green Tara, her right leg is stepping down. So you see how this fits with the action, the compassionate action of of uh, Amogha Siddhi. So she isn't just compassionate. She's engaged. She's active. She's coming out. She's involved. That's what that leg coming forward is. And, of course, Tara is an amazingly rich figure, one of the most popular of all the Buddhas in Tibet. Um, and, you know, she represents this compassionate action. She's enormously uh, accessible. She always feels as if she loves to see you. This is what you get. with. I don't think it sounds strange to say this for a, a mythic, imaginative figure, but that's the feeling I always get with Green Tara, that sense of enormous welcoming. Uh, and involvement, and interest. She's not distant. She's very, very close, very involved, very beautiful, uh, full of vitality, full of life. And you notice that her right hand is in the upaya mudra. It's gripping the stem of a lotus, but she has uh, the same mudra as a city the upaya mudra. Um, is, it, is it called something different? Mm, yeah. Oh, left hand, sorry, left hand, yes, her left hand is in the Empire Mudra, yes. <laughs> Can't see it very well from you. And her right hand is, uh, is usually in the Generosity Mudra, down with her right leg as it, as it steps forward. So that's the female Buddha of Amoghasiddhi's action family, Green Tara. Um, going out into the world to make a difference. But city is not really just about busy action. Uh, In fact, he's not about busyness at all. Uh, He's not necessarily about doing anything at all. In order to be part of the action family, Mm. karma isn't about sort of bumping things along necessarily or intervening or cracking things apart. Action can be something which is very much an inner volition, a transformation that's happening inside you. Spiritual rebirth is the absorption and the growth of all beneficial qualities. And um, it's as if you need digestion as well as action. When you consume the insights, the nourishment of the insight, they don't immediately turn into energy that can rush around and, and change things. They have to go through the digestive process uh, to be changed into sources of energy. Um, And similarly, Amogasiddhi's phase of spiritual rebirth is a phase where we soak up the qualities of the Buddha. In the case of Amogasiddhi, we soak up the Buddha's fearlessness and courage, his freedom and spontaneity, uh, the fun-loving aspect of the Buddha, his compassion, his ability to transform envy into the all-performing wisdom. So what Amoghasiddhi is saying isn't just, yes, be engaged, be involved, but also sit in the presence of the Buddha. Sit in the presence of Amoghasiddhi, Give him your warm attention. And then we can practice the mindfulness of a Buddha, uh, which is one of the great meditation practices, uh, the Buddha being aware of the Buddha just sitting there being aware of the Buddha. And you can do this literally by sitting in front of a Buddha image and just looking at it and see what impact it has on you. And then maybe you can close your eyes and see the Buddha in your mind's eye, made of light, brilliant, absolutely beautiful, so stable, so full of kindness, so full of wisdom, so full of awareness. So that sense uh, is, is the meditation associated with spiritual rebirth is the meditation where you contemplate the Buddha or some uh, aspect of the Buddha. By contemplating the Buddha, by contemplating the symbolic significance of his attributes or his appearance, his colour, his mantra, then those qualities start to become more and more real within us and then we can set out from that warm cottage Uh, Into the a new day uh, with an unstoppable glow of courage deep inside us, and then we can engage effectively uh, with the world. Uh, So I'll I'll stop there, um, and we'll go to our have a cup of tea, and go to our groups. And maybe you'd like to look at some of those questions I mentioned. Uh, How can you move towards skillfulness? How can you move towards your action being more effective? without it becoming um, interfering, busyness sort of thing. Um, also, what about courage? How do you, how do you respond to that mudra? Uh, where, are, where are your sources of fear? And where are your sources of courage, confidence and fearlessness? Um, and any response you've got to any of the symbols of city here's double vajra, that sense of stability, a very mysterious symbol. What does that mean to you? His colour of green, Um, the sense of soaring through the air, what does that remind you of? His consort, green Tara, Uh, what does she convey to you, and so on. And then the stories from the life of the Buddha, maybe there's something that evokes for you. The story of the Buddha sitting in the jungle, just facing his fears, sitting with his fears. The story of the Buddha meeting with the Naga prince, Muchalinda, being sheltered from the rain and the prince bowing in front of him. Or the story of the Buddha facing the terrifying, uh, drink-crazed elephant thundering down the road and simply raising his hand and filling the elephant with his metta, with his goodwill. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.